Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So this actually might not come as a surprise to you, April, or our listeners, but consumers have played no small part in shaping history. Mm-hmm. And guess what has been a central driving force of trade and consumerism for millennia? Clothing and textiles. (laughs) And that is why we are so pleased to have today's guest, Dr. Beverly Lemire, on the show today. Dr. Lemire is Professor and Henry Marshall Tory Chair in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, where she offers classes on her area of expertise, which is fashion and material culture. I really wish I could go back to college and take these classes. I'm just saying. (laughs) But you did read her book, so there's that. (laughs) Um, And as will be evidenced by our talk today, Dr. Lemire specializes in the entangled relationship between material culture, race, and gender as they relate to British imperialism, trade, and the early modern era. And this is something that she has been writing about for years. Her first book, Fashion's Favorite, The Cotton Trade and the Consumer in Britain, was published in 1991 and was the first to consider the relationship between a single commodity and its consumers. And Cass, Dr. Lemire's work is incredibly important in more ways than one. She is actually a pioneer in the field of fashion studies. Yeah, and I don't know how much detail we've gone to on the show about this, but there was a time when fashion was basically a dirty word in academia. Still kind of is sometimes, <laughs> just yeah, saying. It's true. I, yeah, it, It's it always an uphill true. battle. <laughs> <laughs> so it was while a PhD student at Yale in the 1970s that the now renowned fashion historian and past-dressed guest and museum director of the FIT, <laughs> FIT Museum in New York, Dr. Valerie Steele, recognized the need to, quote, do real scholarly fashion history as cultural history. But her professors initially scoffed when she proposed studying the cultural history of corsets, which is an incredible book. And in her 1991 essay, The F Word, Steele wrote that the F Word, which of course is fashion, still has the power to reduce many academics to embarrassed or indignant silence. But that would change in the ensuing decades thanks to many different scholars, but also especially those working in consumer history and material culture scholars like Lemire, our today's guest, who were incredibly instrumental in validating fashion as both an analytical lens and a subject. So something that's worthy of serious academic inquiry. And that started happening in the late 80s and 90s. And Dr. Lemire has dedicated her career to studying economic and consumer-related dress histories. What began as an interest in the British clothing trade, production, and dress practices has since developed into a focus on global fashion and bodies. While not specifically about fashion, her most recent book, Global Trade and the Transformation of Consumer Cultures, The Material World Remade, circa 1500 to 1820, Well, it inevitably centers fashion and textiles as 
both being driving forces of the cosmopolitan materialism that Lemire really undertakes as her subject. And she demonstrates the profound influence different cultural aspects of dress have played in the rising international cosmopolitanism. So international trade transported new products and new people around the world, effectively transforming material cultures in ways which still resonate with us to this very day. Yeah, and Lemire's book is exceptional in that she really makes a point to focus on the burgeoning material culture that existed beyond those prominent city ports and, you know, upper-class households that we're so often used to hearing about. And she extended it, her study, to cover the actions and the material cultures of everyday people who not only supported this growing global consumerism with their labor, but also actively participated in it. So she gives a voice to these individuals, communities, and entire cultures that have long been overlooked or been given short thrift by Euros centric perspectives that have privileged the histories of white European and Americans. So Lemire really decenters the so-called West to tell a global history. And we are so pleased to welcome her to the show today. Dr. Lemire, a warm welcome. Beverly, thank you so much for joining me today on Dressed. It's just a great pleasure. Thank you for asking me. And of course, we are here today to discuss your wonderful book, Global Trade and the Transformation of Consumer Cultures, The Material World Remade, circa 1500 to 1820. But before we dive into this fascinating topic, I mean, there's tons of fascinating topics related to this book. I would actually love to hear a little bit about your career path and how you came to writing about dress and fashion and also about global consumer history. Yeah, that's a sort of two-step answer that I'll give you. So I guess I should confess that my academic trajectory was rather unorthodox. Uh, I did one year of university and then I quit. My dad was so upset. Uh, (laughs) And I was out for a number of years. And then I went back to university. Um, By that time, I had a three-year-old daughter and I was married and I'd experienced different things and so I think, I think that life experience, no, I'm sure that life experience led me to have different questions. I loved history. I loved seeing the connection between the now and the then. But I was also from my late, you know, undergraduate days, I was really interested in fashion as I understood fashion as a social, cultural, economic force. And I was pretty sure that it might be the case that in the historical period as well, ordinary people played a role. And so I had questions about uh, various things. The first questions I had were to do with the Indian cotton trade between India from about 1600 or so to England. And the fashion changes that took place and and the political ramifications leading to the Industrial Revolution. So I was lucky in that every question that I had inevitably when I answered it to my satisfaction led to more questions. Fashion was always at the core. In my first project that resulted in my first book, I was confident that I could challenge the assumptions of that time, which is that only people with a considerable amount of wealth in the middle middle classes could participate in markets, could shape fashions, could interpret fashions, if you like. So I looked around to try to see how ordinary 
people reflected their interest in fashion. For example, there's very unreliable statistics from that time period. Uh, so I looked in uh, criminal records to see what was being stolen from who and to see what I could tell about changes in what ordinary people owned. And that led me to thinking about ways in which the secondhand trade figured as a really, really important indicator of the, the sort of depth of fashion, if you like. So much of fashion history up to that point had really been looking at higher-end products, the consumption patterns of the upper middle and upper class uh, wealthy elite. And so you're really kind of challenging that narrative. And you do that in Global Trade and the Transformation of Consumer Culture as well. You're decentering that narrative. We have to acknowledge that the vast majority of people are not, you know, dukes, duchesses, or even very wealthy merchants. So how did their material lives uh, manifest themselves, including in dress? So I can remember reading, it was his autobiography. Um, He was a radical politician in the early 19th century, but when he started out in life, he was an apprentice for a breeches maker. And later on in life, he he gave an account of, of his early life. And he talks very explicitly about the styles of the boys he knew. And so these are boys of the laboring classes. Some of them, their families were even sort of semi-criminal, but, but urban boys. And he talks about the fact that they loved uh, striped stockings in different ways and how they would grow their hair out, make it into a curl so that it, that it would hang down. And they wore floppy hats that his father hated. He said only highwaymen wear these floppy hats. So you can see right there evidence of youth fashions, urban youth fashions. And it had been suggested that this was only something that was characteristic of the 19th or 20th century. Well, now it's super commonly known that that just wasn't the case. And I know we're going to get questions about this. Do you recall the name of that politician by chance? Oh, yeah, yeah. Francis Place. Okay. Francis Place. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're really bringing a voice also to the everyday person because these voices aren't readily accessible either. You really have to go and look for them a lot of the times. And you mentioned the criminal record, which uh, a lot of historians, and recently we just had the authors of The Pocket on, and, and they use criminal records a lot to access women's lives. It's such a wonderful resource to, to access people's voices that you wouldn't normally uh, hear from in the historic record. And learn so much about people's identities, too, and how material culture is a reflection of those identities, which is something you do so incredibly well in this book that we are here to talk about today. It's, as I mentioned earlier, it's a global consumer history. It spans the years 1500 to 1820, so that is no small time frame or geographical time frame. <laughs> so for those our listeners who might not have read your work, can you please introduce us to your book and the events that would dramatically alter consumer culture for centuries to come? Okay, so I start at 1500 because, as we all know, that's the break point, right? That's the point at which, well, in the 1500s, there is direct... Uh, connection between East and West, there is direct and repeated, like routinized global connections across the Pacific, for example. At the same time, I hope I am really clear in this book that this isn't all about uh, Western agency and non-Western, you know, just accepting what happens. Uh, I frame the book from the beginning with 
Asia as the powerhouse, if you like, the material powerhouse in terms of the things that it manufactures, but also the things that it wants. And from that perspective, we have the, the answer to the how come, why, why were Europeans so deathly keen to get to Asia? So from that period of 1500, we see series of events that bring people into contact more routinely with complex connections, entanglements that really uh, change world history in dramatic ways. Some of these are things that are horrible, transatlantic slave trade being one, routinized enslavement following uh, the impact of disease and colonization on indigenous peoples. Acknowledging these things, we still have to, we still should see ways in which these entanglements take place, ways in which changes take place, and look for the voices of those who set out to live their lives as best they could, given the circumstances that they faced. So this is not a study of corporate interaction. I take it as a given that the East India Company, the West Indies companies, say the Dutch, were there. But I'm really interested in what happened because of this movement, but also what happened uh, on the edges. There's a lot of time spent looking at informal uh, commerce and the significance of this. Uh, what one scholar calls extra legal, extra legal activities, because these two changed uh, profoundly as a result of things like increased oceanic contact. And so really at the center of your book is this global material culture that you write about or this cosmopolitan material culture that comes out through all of this, you know, dramatic expansion of trade around the world and all of these different trade networks. And and you really take us through this history, not just chronologically, but also in these pockets around the world. And you, you said in the beginning of answering this question that you hope that you did well, that you are really showing how you're kind of decentering in many ways that Eurocentric perspective. And I, I would say as someone who's just read this book that you absolutely did, you make that very clear in the introduction, for instance, that you're combating more traditional histories and perspectives that past historians have done that centers the Western or Euro-American lens. But you really de-shift that to focus on all of these different communities, these different case studies, and you bring the voices, experience, and contributions of these people, and then also people of the, you know, the lower classes to the fore, and I think you've kind of answered this, but maybe you could talk about it a little bit more about why you think this is so important to telling this story, especially within the context of what has been told before or how it's been told before. Thank you for that question. I think it's critically important to get a sense of the, the decentering imperative. And I thank you for using that word. The especially dress history. Um, it's sort of unfortunate in a way, but you know, it, it was the same with many other histories. The assumption was that fashion emerged in the West and nowhere else. Um, great historians like Fernand Brodel insisted on that. I mean, good for him for noting in his monumental work, the importance of changing material culture, but he insisted that yes, fashion emerged in the West and nowhere else. But he also insisted that fashion only emerged in this sort of top icing 
of people on the cake. And um, my research, but also the research of a generation, my generation and, and others have shown that very much not to be the case. <laughs> uh, some of the most exciting work we're seeing is in analysis of fashion and fashion patterns uh, in, in China, in the Tang Dynasty. Um, we have new research that's coming out of the Indian subcontinent on issues of this sort. There's a wonderful work that's done by a historian named Steve Buckridge uh, looking at Jamaica and history of uh, dress, fashion, resistance in Jamaica. And in his last book, he looked at bark cloth. Okay. So some people, when you think of bark cloth, you think of the Pacific immediately. But this was, this was a different kind of bark cloth. This was a cloth that actually came from the bark looking sort of like lace. And then there were techniques of soaking and stretching and manipulating. So you have African women who arrive in Jamaica with knowledge of, of different sort of material skills, see this tree, determine what they can use from this resource, and even as enslaved, produce this extraordinary commodity that looks like lace, that looks like lace that would be made in Europe. They can make it, they can sell it, but they can also dress themselves in ways that they wouldn't be able to do without this knowledge and their, you know, creative agency, if you like. Yeah, and actually, dress listeners, that book is called African Lace Bark in the Caribbean, uh, the Construction of Race, Class, and Gender. And then I actually just read Language of Dress, which was his first book, Resistance and Accommodation in Jamaica. And, you know, you've also just reminded me that he would probably make an excellent dressed guest. But so what what I think you do really well throughout your book, and, and you show this, is how global consumer culture, that global consumer culture that comes as a result of all this trade, it's really inextricably linked to these imperial projects. But you also show how men and women in cultures around the globe, across the social strata, you know, how they really challenged, subverted, and resisted these colonial projects as active agents. And we're going to get into that a little bit more later. But before we do, the next question I have for you is, I love this book. <laughs> it's I, And I love it because it, in many ways, it's about, it's a history told through objects and people's relationships to objects. And that so many of the objects you take as your subject are articles of dress <laughs> really speaks to the centrality of clothing in driving this new cosmopolitan consumer culture we see blossom during this period. So why is cloth and clothing in particular so significant to the tale that you've woven? First of all, fabric is the most traded commodity in the world anywhere that you go. So it's foundational for manufacturing, it's foundational for commerce, it's what drove the Silk Road, you know, the, the, the sorts of commodities that were produced in China. China is one example, but wherever you go, cultures and communities develop cloth for functional, ritual, and culturally significant reasons. So this is, is one of my colleague says, you know, this is the cloth world. Fur is, a, is another manifestation of that. So these are foundational materials. And then, you know, the sort of social skin, as it's called, of dress really allows you to see what's prioritized. I mean, there's specialists whose work I wholly depended on who show the ways in which uh, 
clothing was, you know, significant to, to various communities, different time periods, transformations taking place on which and what people would prefer to wear and to use, uh, life cycle. All of these things figured into the significance and the uses of, of clothing. If I can just retreat once more to the issue of the secondhand trade, the existence of the secondhand trade, it flourished because people might have sufficient, but they understood cloth and its uses as more than just what covers your body. It, it also could figure as a sort of virtual savings bank. Um, if you had these things either in you know, a bottom drawer or another sort of container, these, these could be used for various ceremonies, but they could also be taken with you to new households, whether for work or for marriage. The significance of cloth and clothing is foundational to this period and continues in, in some respects to be foundational in, in terms of an object of value until you get you know, fast fashion where the whole value of cloth is diminished uh, profoundly. Yeah, I think people from back then looking at our modern age would not even be able to comprehend how much clothing we are able to produce, consume, and throw away. I think it would blow their mind because cloth and clothing was so incredibly valuable. Yes. For yeah. so many reasons. It was not something you you took lightly. So you took care of it more. You valued it more. We have a sustainability platform on the podcast, so we talk about this a lot. So our listeners are, will probably be familiar with what we're talking about, but it's just incredible to consider it within these historical contexts because it's really something quite different than what we have today. I'd like if we could get into specifics with a couple different objects. Sure. So... To put it simply, as you did in your book, cloth enabled trade, among many things, as we've just discussed. So you write that the beaver hat, in particular, was, quote, emblematic of new luxury commodities in the Atlantic world, a token of colonial interactions on a global stage. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. I explored the, the issue of the beaver hat, which has been so written about, very much written about, in terms of the fur trade, the North American fur trade. I looked at the beaver hat as this uh, sort of critical fashion item. I don't know if your listeners will understand how a beaver skin gets into being made into a hat, but the, the, um, the dense hairs are scraped off and then felted. And this was like a, a miracle thing. It held its shape. It was water repellent, all of those things. So this was a fashion item for elites and semi-elites, all sorts of knockoffs of beaver hats were made to look like them with maybe a little bit of beaver fur, uh, but then with, with other things for those who were less, uh, who had fewer resources. The, the fad for beaver, of course, drove the fur trade in the 16th, 17th century, even into the 18th, I guess, which in itself drove entanglement of indigenous Americans and uh, various colonial forces, not in this instance for settlement, but for trade. And so there was an enormous reliance on the indigenous population, men and women, who were critical in supplying what was needed, by, what was wanted by Europeans. 
this was not a one-way street. Indigenous peoples directed trade and determined what goods they would take in exchange for these beaver pelts. Uh, there was a lot of competition among Europeans that has been documented by various historians because if the blankets were bad quality, if the knives weren't sharp or broke, they would simply go somewhere else. And in this way, something, a fur that came from Northern North America became a staple of, of fashion in Western Europe. And then I was also intrigued to see that in its secondhand life, it could also be exchanged on the West Coast of Africa because apparently there was value assigned to this commodity as well by uh, communities in West Africa. I don't know much about that, but I think that that's uh, intriguing. So we've talked about it a couple times now <laughs> about secondhand clothing markets, um, which is a topic that, as we've discussed, just does not get enough attention when scholars are considering dress historically. And for example, museums must always exhibit, you know, the most beautiful extant examples of dress from any given period, because in a lot of cases, that is what has survived, but that's also what's prioritized. Um, but it really only provides the smallest glimpse at the reality of how people clothe their bodies. If you can tell us a little bit more about secondhand markets, especially because these spring up in cosmopolitan centers, not just in Europe, but also in places like Japan. Japan, China, the Middle East, wherever there was intense urbanization and a fully developed textile trades. So secondhand markets, I first came across the beginning of my understanding of the importance of secondhand markets in my very first project when I was trying to see how ordinary people might possibly be able to participate in a consumer market. And the answer is uh, with the secondhand clothing trade. So first of all, secondhand clothes have use value, you know, pretty or not repaired or not, but they also are a store of value, I think I mentioned before, as if they were a savings bank. So the secondhand clothing trade was intense. It's like a spider web through the whole of society. Wealthy people use the secondhand trade to get rid of things, but also acquire to acquire especially nice things. Ordinary people from the middling all the way down use the secondhand trade as well. It is a trade that is dominated numerically by women. It depends on the textile knowledge that women have. Uh, women routinely, and you can see that in, in the 19th century in, in urban areas, women pawned and knew how to pawn clothes because they knew what the value of the clothes were. So pawn shops is one part of the secondhand clothes trade, uh, but also big secondhand markets where people who needed, for example, so you are going to a, try and get a job as a domestic servant, but you don't have any respectable clothes. You need to find something, or you need to find something, there's lots of examples of this for the 19th century. You need to find something where you could work as a clerk. You go to the secondhand market, you find it, you hope maybe somebody can adjust it for you, but it's absolutely critical for your self-presentation. In bulk, and believe me, there's secondhand sales of clothes in bulk. In bulk, the secondhand trade was also, you know, a large international commerce. You can think of ordinary women in working laboring neighborhoods 
collecting and selling secondhand clothes on the street or in their front room. That's sort of like capillaries, and then that would move into uh, marketplaces. And then from these marketplaces, there would be international merchants who would also deal in secondhand trade and secondhand clothing. And these would go literally all over the world where they could be adjusted, cut down. Just think of a chop shop for cars. It's the same sort of thing. And I should say legal and illegal because clothing was the commonest thing that was stolen because you could turn it into money or something else, just like that. And you have a whole section in your book on on smuggling. <laughs> That's a whole other thing, yes. <laughs> smuggling, um, you know, kind of the criminal elements or extra legal elements, as you call them, of of the clothing trade, which which is also incredibly fascinating. I think it's not all about clothing, but there is a significant portion, I think, where you do talk about that. You know, sometimes you're working away in the archives and you find something and you get this little tingle in your stomach. So one of my favorite instances of that is when I was reading letters that were sent to the Customs House in London. So this is the network of people who are trying to enforce borders, basically, and laws on import-export. Anyway, so they're talking about someone they call a pirate. And this is off the, the islands in the farthest north of Scotland. And this this officer talks about going out to this pirate, he's a smuggler, in his rowboat, and the pirate going in a boat, and they meet between their two ships. And the pirate offers him a keg of brandy, and he refuses it. And then the next thing he offers him is an embroidered Chinese robe. And this is the 1720s, 1730s. When I read... An embroidered Chinese robe. Okay. It challenges how we think of metropolitan periphery when we think about these networks. It challenges the way in which we understand people's material lives. Exactly. And and such an incredible, like you said, thing to come across in the archive, um, but just also to imagine <laughs> um, these material lives and lives lived through material objects. Uh, it's such It's such an incredible thing. I should say that not everyone who participated in consumer culture did it of their own free will. Can you introduce us to a few examples of the what you call the involuntary consumer and how their plight is directly connected to the rise of the ready-to-wear industry? Because this is really fascinating. Okay, so involuntary consumers are those who need certain goods, but they don't get to choose. So typically, these people are, are the subjects of institutions of various sorts. And, and among the largest institutions at this time are military. So in the Navy and in the Army and uh, enslaved people, the majority of whom were from Africa. They didn't get to choose, but the institutional needs to maintain this population is what drove involuntary consumption, whether it's textiles from Central Europe going over to be made into clothes in the plantation regions, or whether it's the shipping of bales and bales of, well, they call them slop clothes, ready-made clothes for the British Navy. I mean, literally tons and tons and tons, shirts, trousers, uh, jackets. These were all required in order to keep uh, 
well, in order to keep the men alive and in fighting form in often very hostile environments. So who makes these? These are made by women. Women, sometimes children to a, a little extent, they're made in sort of hidden work areas. So if you think about the, the rise of the Royal Navy or the rise of other navies and, and great commercial shipping fleets, you, you think of dockyards and you think of all the work that goes on in dockyards, the making of the ships, the supplying them, the sails, that sort of thing. But you also needed to dress these populations. And that also resulted in the growth of this enormous ready-made industry. I thought that maybe it was from the mid-17th century. I think it predates that. Uh, but there hasn't been enough study really to, to nail it down. But if you have this population that is so deeply dependent on being dressed, you need to order it. The thing about this manufacturing is that it's paid for, I'm talking about the military, Navy and Army, it's, it's paid for in the, in the last instance from the government. So eventually the contractors are going to get paid. Eventually this other kind of army of seamstresses is going to get paid. You know, this really did lead to the development of the ready-made clothes trade because sailors weren't in uniforms as such. They, they were dressed in working men's clothes. And so, you know, when wars are over, you have those networks of contractors, a shirt's a shirt uh, at that level. And there was then um, an ability to send them elsewhere. They sent them to fishing ports in Newfoundland. They sent them to fur trading forts in other parts of northern North America. And also um, ready-made clothes were sent, I think, to a lesser extent than raw fabric. But ready-made clothes were also sent to plantations. There's trade cards that are advertised as such. So those are the categories of the largest cohort of involuntary consumers. Consumer material products carry, carry meanings. And of course, these rather poor quality clothes were intended to reflect, you know, subservient status of, of different sorts, whether by rank or by race. And that's certainly one element of the ready-to-wear industry and then also the global consumer culture that we're speaking of. But there's also this other theme that runs throughout the book, which is creative sartorial defiance. In other words, you ex repeatedly explore how people subverted and defied the colonial project through consumer culture and through the dressed body. And I'm hoping you can share a couple examples with us and why that was such an important aspect for you to include in your book. I, I think it it also goes to the question of decentering, as as the, the word you used right at the start of our conversation. So, if we look at documentation in archives and see, you know, twenty five tons of clothes sent here and there, you tend to think of the recipients of as being sort of having this stuff dropped on them, and and that's it. The thing that my students are constantly surprised about is that. The enslaved population organized social events, organized dances, organized weddings, and chose to dress themselves in ways that reflected their cultural priorities. The um, work that's been done on the head wrap or tignon in French. So 
laws were introduced in, in various of the colonial regions of the Caribbean area and proximate area that women of African heritage, slavery-free, had to cover their hair. And so, of course, they did. But what they also did was turn these head coverings into extraordinary fashionable confections. One of the things that Sophie White has shown in, in her earlier work was how knowledgeable Africans were about Indian cottons, because, of course, Indian cottons had been traded into West Africa for generation after generation. So they were familiar with these handkerchiefs. They were, they were familiar and were used to those sorts of um, creative fashion expressions. So this creative sartorial defiance. And you can also see persistences in other ways in other populations who are supposed to be colonized, but uh, choose to see themselves in another way. So something you write about quite beautifully in the book is embroidery and how embroidery gets from, you know, one part of the world all the way to the other part of the world. And, and really it becomes this transnational and transcultural technology. For instance, you write that Asian floral patterns were among the most powerful emblems of early globalization. And this is no more beautifully articulated than in, you know, the decorative commodities of things like porcelain, but for our intents and purposes, embroidered textiles. And I'm hoping you can tell us about the spread and influence of both Asian embroidery, but also Asian needleworkers during this period, something you write helped prime a globalized aesthetic and vocabulary of design. It is very hard to trace people who had a limited ability to document themselves. So what you have is suggestions here and there in uh, official records. You have the recording of the fact that uh, embroiderers from across uh, what's now Indonesia and the Philippines and one from Japan were landed at the port of Lisbon uh, because another ship where other embroiderers were on sank. So then reference survives. Um, I just read another wonderful new book by a young scholar who's talking about the commercial traffic across the Pacific from New Spain, what's now Mexico, to Manila, and the role of colonial women in writing to each other and saying, okay, I want a slave who's a good embroiderer, uh, and also send me you know, X number of yards of, of silk of a certain color. So you have women, also men, with embroidery skills that are moved around the globe, uh, across the Pacific, into the Indian Ocean world, from the Indian Ocean world to Northern Europe, because of the skills that they have in their hands. And then their participation in households, again, not very well recorded, but occasionally recorded, their participation in, in households just made me think that that's another way in which skills and aesthetics moved. I mean, aesthetics obviously move with great cargoes from one place to another and through correspondence of, of various sorts. But I think that there's another more intimate uh, circulation that involves literally the movement of people and the movement of people who otherwise would be entirely anonymous and one of the objects that you look at and talk about repeatedly is Colchas embroidery, 
which is this prized, um, you know, Hispanic American craft, Spanish colonial America, but it actually has deep-seated Indian continental origins in many ways. It's that entanglement. It's absolutely that entanglement. And if you Google Cortes, New Mexico, whole websites come up because there's enormous family pride and regional pride and cultural pride in these gorgeously designed things. But yet, if you go to a region of Portugal, you will also see histories of cultures specific to various regions where a population of women embroiderers, maybe with some Asian embroiderers among them, also developed a a very distinctive cultural form, again, inspired by the Asian originals, which were themselves, you know, amalgams. (laughs) It's all connected. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Beverly, thank you so much for being here today. You're very welcome. I'm just going to go out on a limb here, Cass, and guess that you two only touched on a small portion of the subjects which are covered (laughs) in Dr. Lemire's book. Yes, you would be correct. I mean, in a book spanning three centuries, we obviously could only touch on a small portion of the stories featured in Lumiere's book. So I highly recommend that our listeners check it out. I will say that it's definitely an academic book. Um, I will tell you that. But it is incredibly fascinating nonetheless. There's so, so many fascinating subjects that she covers and digs into. As is also her work in the secondhand clothing trade, which came up repeatedly in your conversation. And if you want to learn more about that, you can also check out uh, Dr. Lemire's 1997 book, Dress, Culture, and Commerce, The English Clothing Trade Before the Factory, 1660 to 1800. It is out of print, which usually means it's a bit expensive. But um, as we always like to remind our listeners, you can always enter a library loan books to your own local library. I do this all the time. (laughs) Yeah, me too. It's such a great resource that so many of us don't realize we can use. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the value of the material culture residing in your closet next time you get dressed. Dress listeners, as of now, we are moving forward cautiously, but optimistically with the Dress August trip to Paris. So if you'd like to join us and learn more, uh, head over to likemindstravel.com for more info. We love hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And as you all probably already know, we do post images on Instagram each week to accompany our episodes. And you can find us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. As always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More Dressed coming your way on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.